We continue our series titled Aftermath. And what is aftermath? Aftermath is really the idea of that there are some after effects of the resurrection. And we, we, ha- we come to a resurrection Sunday, and it's the Super Bowl, as it were. And we have these great celebrations, which we should. And we'll continue to do that. But there are some after effects of the resurrection. The resurrection is not a one-time deal that once it happens, it's all kind of it. No, there are some things that are profound that continue because Jesus is alive. We sang it a moment ago, this changes everything, and it does. It changes everything in our life. So we're going to talk a little bit about that. Last week we did, we talked about Mary and her response in the aftermath of the resurrection. Today we're going to talk about the disciples. So look with me, if you would, to John chapter 20. We're going to begin reading at verse number 19. John chapter 20, verse number 19. On the evening of the first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. With that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. So setting the stage, let's talk through this passage of Scripture a little bit to give us an understanding of what's happening. Setting the stage. I would say this way. It's nighttime on Resurrection Day. Nighttime on Resurrection Day. And there's something really significant to me. I think about this scene, and I know here's what you can envision. You have ten disciples who are gathered in a room. Can you imagine the conversations that are going on in that room? Two of the guys have come back, and they have seen an empty tomb. Now, Thomas isn't there. Uh, there's all kinds of things happening. You know, and so the, the questions are swirling. <laughs> it's dark outside. The doors are locked. And the scripture says they were afraid. So there's a lot, of, there's a lot going on at that moment. And you know, I think about conversations or questions that are being asked, such as, where's the body? What happened? What, where's the body? Uh, did, did, y'all, did y'all hear about Judas? Did you hear what happened? Did you hear what he did? Questions like, where is Thomas? Why isn't he here? Did, was he arrested? Was, was he picked up by the Jewish leaders? What, where's Thomas? Why isn't he with us? And then maybe this question trumps them all. What are we going to do now? Just think about that. Because the reality is, the, the nighttime has its own sense of, in, of uncertainty. Just because it's dark, it creates a, 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 an, an uncertainty of life. You know, even if you're in familiar territory and it's dark, there's still uncertainty. There's still a little bit of, I guess you could say, fear or anxiety when we can't see as clearly. We can't discern as readily. Things are not normal. Things just don't look the same. When it's nighttime, in fact, there was a phrase that was coined in the 16th century by a Spanish monk, and he coined this phrase in a poem, and he called it the dark night of the soul. And I would, I would suggest that this is exactly where the disciples are. It's a dark night of the soul for them. You say, well, what exactly does that mean? The dark night of the soul isn't an ordinary fit of depression, and this is really important to hear. It's not an ordinary fit of depression, but it is a depression that is linked to a crisis of faith. 
A crisis that comes when one senses absence of God and gives the feeling, gives into a feeling of abandonment by him. Now, I just wonder this morning, and you don't, don't answer this, have you ever felt alone, ever felt abandoned by God, you know, or you feel like you're just in the middle of a whole bunch of darkness, and you lock yourself in, and you don't let anybody into your life because the darkness is overwhelming, and then the fear adds, adds even more to that particular moment of crisis. You could describe yourself as being in a dark night of the soul. You see, David understood this. David was there in Psalm chapter 6, verses 6 and 7. This is what he wrote. He said, I am worn out from sobbing. All night I flood my bed with weeping, drenching it with my tears. My vision is blurred because of grief. Go back to this scene. On the night of the resurrection, these guys are locked up behind closed doors. They're fearful. It is dark outside. There's uncertainty going on. They're in the middle of a dark night of the soul. They don't know what's going to happen next. There's crisis. God has abandoned them. They don't know what is going to happen next. Well, the doors are locked. The doors are locked. That in and of itself, it, it amplifies, when you lock something up, it amplifies the uncertainty of the, of the scene. And it provided for them a measure of security, yes, but, but it couldn't and it didn't keep Jesus from invading their space. And I want you to know something, when, when, things, when things turn dark, when, when we lock ourselves in, and honestly, let's just be honest, we prefer... We prefer when there's the dark night of the soul is just to lock ourselves away and not have any encounter with anybody. We're just going to handle this on our own. We're going to draw close to ourselves. We're going to lock the doors. We're going to huddle up and it's all, somehow it's all going to go away. But I want you to know something. John Piper made a great comment. He said this. He says, there is no place, now hear this, there is no place where you are. There is no place where you are and no depths of personhood that you are that Jesus cannot penetrate. You see, Jesus wants to invade those places of darkness and locked spaces. He wants to intervene in the areas of our greatest crisis and need. Well, you go on, you continue with the scene, and the disciples are afraid. They're fearful. In a supposedly safe location, okay, their doors are locked for fear of the Jewish leaders. Now, fear paralyzes us. It overwhelms us. And it's debilitating. Understand this. And I think, we have, I think we have somewhat of a grasp of this. This is not the life that Christ has envisioned for us. is to live in a place that is in darkness, that is locked up, and that is filled with fear. That's not what God has intended for our lives. In fact, in fact, there's something even what God has intended. Listen to how Paul would say it. God did not give us a spirit that makes us afraid, but a spirit of power, of love, and of self-control. That's what God has for us. That's what he's given to us. But we often, by our own decisions, by the crisis of faith, by abandonment, because it's dark, because things are challenging, and we lock ourselves away, our fear just overwhelms us. 
Well, in this scene, what happens next is Jesus enters the room. Now, that by itself answers a lot of questions. Can you imagine the aha moment for these guys? They're in the middle of the dark. They're locked away. Okay, you can't get in if the doors are locked, right? And they're afraid. And all of a sudden, right in the middle, here's Jesus. He enters the room. And I want you to hear this. The dark night of the soul always gives way to the brightness of the noonday light of the presence of God. When crisis is there, I want you to know something. Darkness cannot stay where Jesus makes his presence known. It was lit up. They were lit up. The disciples were overjoyed when Jesus appeared. You, I, yeah, no kidding. Oh, there you are. This is, wow, look at this. Well, if you continue on in the scene, there's some life-changing words that Jesus gives them. He shows up and... He gives them three life-changing words. This is how I'm summarizing it. The first word is peace. What I really love about this word peace is he has to see it. He, he says it twice. But when I was 10, a lot like probably a lot of 10-year-old boys in my hometown and anywhere for that matter, I played Little League. And I think it was a Tuesday night. I was 10 years old, Tuesday night, Little League practice. And we were at Peterson Elementary School. I can still see the backstop. I can still see the school. I got it. I got it locked in because what happened was so significant to me. Okay, the coach has left. Every player has been picked up, and I'm there by myself. Now, that wouldn't happen today, but when I was 10, it wasn't uncommon for everybody to leave, and you're just kind of on your own. I was there in the dark. It was dark. It wasn't twilight. It was dark. I am there by myself, and I want to tell you something. I was afraid. Now, I, did, I knew where I was. But there was, an unfamiliar, there was a bit of an unfamiliarity. Everything looks different in the dark. And I was, not, I was not in a good place until my dad showed up. And when my dad showed up, everything was right with the world. I was safe, and I was at peace. I would say it this way. I had a shalom moment. You say, what? I had a shalom moment. Let me, let me help you understand what that means. That familiar Hebrew greeting, it is considerably richer notion than the mere absence of stress. Hear this. In its Old Testament context, shalom basically means well-being to its fullest extent. Well-being to its fullest extent. Shalom is life at its best under the gracious hand of God. So when Jesus shows up in this room of frightened guys in the middle of the dark behind locked doors, he said, Shalom. May the gracious hand of God provide you with life at its very best. And if you don't believe it the first time, I'm going to say it again. Because that's what God's intention and desire is for our lives. Jesus had promised them peace. In John chapter 14 and verse number 27, he says, I am leaving you with a gift, peace of mind and heart. The peace I give is a gift that the world cannot give. So don't be troubled or afraid. Shalom. Not only does Jesus speak it to the disciples, he assures them of it because of his presence. He's there with us. And what an answer, what an answer to, the dark, to, their, to their dark night of the soul when Jesus shows up and says, peace. Make no mistake, in the dark night of, in your dark night of the soul, 
Jesus still speaks peace. He, he is His presence is there to speak peace over us and to provide life at its very best. That's what he has come to give us. The second word of peace, yeah, purpose. Yeah, purpose. You see, when Jesus showed up, a lot of questions were immediately answered. Oh, you are alive. I mean, that's obvious. But then I wonder what happens from there. I wonder if the guys say, oh, cool, he's back. We're going to go fishing again. We're going to start walking the hillsides. We're going to start doing that. We're going to do that. We're going to do that. I wonder if it was just going to be business as usual. Not so much. Just like what happened with Mary last week. If you recall, Mary saw Jesus at the tomb, and when he said, Rabboni, she turned around and she reached out to grab him. She, he said to her, do not grab my feet, but instead go to my brothers and tell them that I am alive. He instilled purpose in her, and he is doing the exact same thing with the disciples. He said, as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. There is purpose. Understand, Jesus is not merely, has not merely come to assure them of his conquest of death and the triumph of his kingdom, but he has come to prepare them for what lies ahead. He is sending them out with the good news of the kingdom of God. And I just want you to know something. I am grateful for this. I'm grateful this morning that the blessings and the benefits I have received from God. And if you're here today and you've said, God has done good things in my life, say, yes, yes, he has. God has done good things in us. And I am grateful for that. But hear me. But all that he has done, all that he has done is to be declared, not just contained. I am not to just be a repository of the blessings of God. I am not to be just the person, I've experienced the good news and that's where it stops. No, I have been called to a purpose and that is to share the good news of Jesus Christ with every opportun- at every opportunity. We are commanded, in fact. And this is John's equivalent of the Great Commission in Matthew 28. Jesus came and told his disciples, I've been given all authority in heaven and earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all the, all the commands I've given you and be sure of this. I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. The third word is presence. Presence. So we have, he gives them peace. He gives them purpose. And then he assures them of his presence. And I love this. He says, and then with that, he breathes on them. Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you don't forgive them, they're not forgiven. You see, at this very moment, Jesus transforms them. The life-giving power of the Spirit of God is now infused in them. And they walk from that place in his authority to proclaim the good news of Christ. And those who accept their words are saved. Those who reject their words are not. It's just that simple. And in just a few days, this points to an amazing, an amazing occurrence that takes place on the day of Pentecost when the Spirit of God is outpoured and 120 are filled and empowered to be and to do what God has called them to do. So when I think about this passage of Scripture, it is a great story, but something has just overwhelmed me this week. And, I've, I, and it's not just been this week. Even as I've been preparing this for the last couple of months as getting ready for this series, this is what kept coming back to me. And it's this phrase, the doors were locked for fear. For fear. 
And I think about that. It seems to me that until we grapple with and overcome this fear that I think easily gets to us, we're not going to be able able to fully enjoy the peace that God has for us, the purpose that he has called us to, and his abiding presence. We just won't have it in his fullest measure. I, I truly believe that. So I have a question for you this morning. This is where we're going to spend the rest of our time. I'm going to, don't answer this question. Just think about it. What are you afraid of? What are you afraid of? Before you answer it, you have to understand what's in the back of my mind. I have a list in the back of my mind of 101 phobias. Now, what's a phobia? A phobia is an irrational fear. Catch this. It's an irrational fear of something that's unlikely to cause harm. That's important to understand. It is irrational of something that is unlikely to cause harm. An irrational. What does that say? It says there are things that are, you can be fearful of that are rational. But there are irrational fears. It comes from the Greek word phobos, which means fear or horror. Now, I want to, just for a couple of minutes, I, wanna, I want us to look at five irrational fears. And we're just going to take a couple. Five irrational fears. And forgive me ahead of time for the bad pronunciation of these. But I'm going to give you five irrational fears. Here's the first one. Electorophobia. Now, this has nothing to do with the electoral college. It has everything to do with chickens. Fear of chickens. Now, I think about chickens. The best chicken that I've ever known has been the one on my plate that's been fried. I have no fear of chickens. Now, maybe you say, wait a minute, you know, chickens are kind of creepy. Maybe. But there's an actual phobia. There is an irrational fear connected to chickens. Here's another one for you. Anomatophobia. Anomatophobia. This is the fear of names. So now, what I, the reason I chose this image is because it's a name tag. I don't like to wear name tags. I don't like name tags for me. I like name tags for you. Because that way it makes me much more comfortable in being able to call out your name when I have forgotten it. But what? You're afraid of names? Here's another one for you. Pogonophobia. This is the fear of beards. Now, here's the, here's the wacky thing about this. I'm afraid of this guy. Okay, first of all, what in the world is he thinking? And does he actually think this is good? That's the part that blows me away. But scared of this guy? Yeah, I, I, I kind of, maybe it's not that irrational when I look at this. Here's another one. Uh, nephophobia. Now, this is the fear of clouds. Can I tell you something? If I saw these clouds, I would be afraid too. Because it does look like somebody is looking down at you, kind of keeping an eye on you, as, or eyes on you, as it were. And one more, one more. Cryophobia. This has nothing to do with weeping or tears. This has to do with winter, snow, and ice. And I just want to go on record as saying, thank you, Jesus, that we live in Southern California, that we don't have to put up with this stuff. I grew up in that stuff, and I am as far away from it as I can. If I want to go to it, I'll drive to it, and I'll come home and go back to the beach. Can I get a good amen on that one? Come on. We're Southern California folk. Absolutely. Now, you have a little bit, a little bit of laughter. But you can see how somewhat irrational these things are. Now, Marcy and I, when we started in ministry, we started in the, here in the West Coast, and 
we had the opportunity to move from the West Coast to the Midwest to follow really a mentor of ours. He invited us to come and serve on his staff and in worship and music, music and uh, youth ministry and stuff. So we were excited to go. So we decided between our, our time here and there, we take three weeks and we just travel and see the U.S. Some areas that we wouldn't normally have seen, we take extra time. We'd stop when we want to, take some of those side trips and go see the world's largest ball of yarn and that kind of nonsense that's out there. And really, that's kind of what we did. We had a wonderful trip. Well, when we got, we were going to see family too. I, had some, I have family in Missouri and Marcy has family in the Dakotas. So we're going to take a trip, see our families. So we went to South Dakota, and we went to Rapid City, South Dakota. And we went to a place called the Reptile Gardens. And the Reptile Gardens had a very nostalgic feel for Marcy. This was a place where she had very fond memories as a kid. And in this building that you see on on screen, this was, I guess you could say, that place where you would venture in and see all of the flowers and the tropical plants and the, the drippy water and everything, but in my humble opinion, by the time I got in there and realized where I was, I could only call it one thing, and that was a terrarium of terror. Now, why would I say that? Because as I walked through this wonderfully lush thing, I didn't think much about it initially until I started looking a little closer, and there were creatures, not unlike these creatures, doing exactly what they were doing. There were balls of these things. They were hanging from the trees. They were on the path. They were everywhere. And I went, abs- I'm telling you, even now, when I was preparing this week and looking at these dumb pictures, I was getting anxious. I could feel my, my blood pressure rising and my breath going away from me. I don't like snakes, and I'm going to tell you right now, there is no redeeming quality for any snake in this world. Now, I know in God's grand purpose, they have, they, there's something there. I get it. But they're not pretty. There's not a snake on this planet. This, oh, they got this beautiful neon. I don't care. They're a snake. Okay, get, take the picture down. Thank you. Go better. See, you have to understand something. So I'm, I'm navigating this, and this path, this path wound its way. Through. There was no, it's like Ikea. You know, when you get into Ikea, you got to follow the path. The only way to get out of the dumb store. This is the way this was. This, this hotel of horror there's no way to get out except follow the path. So I'm following the path, and I get out, and Marcy's wondering, why, why is he gone so quick? He's out of here. And she's there, and she turns around. I look at her, and she goes, you're white as a sheet. I said, uh-huh. I don't like sn- snakes. Now, I laugh about it now. We laugh about it. She had no idea. Now, I'm not saying it's rational or irrational. I'm just saying, for me, that fear's a reality. Can I tell you something? Fear's a thing. Fear's real. Don't deny that. There, there is a thing that, a fear that will overwhelm you, that can paralyze you, that can cause you to be, to, to miss all that God has of this amazing, abundant, and full life. Fear can grip your life. Make no mistake. You see, you may not be dealing with the kinds of fears that are on a phobia list, but the uncertainty of your future weighs heavily on your mind. The matters of family and friends keep you up awake, keep you awake at night. The events of the world 
they just keep fear right in front of us. And they introduce us to fear's first cousins, anxiety and worry. And it overwhelms us. And I will tell you, the peace of God, the purpose that he has for our lives, and the presence of his, and the presence of Christ in our life will not be fully realized until we overcome fear. And we overcome fear in a biblical way. It's not something that we do outside of the Scriptures. We need to do it according to the Scriptures. You see what happens. Worrying, worrying does not empty tomorrow of its troubles. It empties today of its strength. When we worry, today's strength is gone. Because all of our attentions are on something that probably will never happen. Proverbs chapter 12 and verse 25, Solomon said it this way, worry weighs a person down. And if, if worry is one of those things that, remember, it's akin to fear. It's a family member. It's a very close relative. If worry is something that has gripped you today, I want you to know something, it weighs you down. It weighs you down. It keeps you from being all that God desires for you. Fear prevents us from living the abundantly full life and fulfilling the purposes that God has for us. We can't live it. It's not going to happen. But I have good news for you. The scripture that anchors this, this series is right here. Proverbs 23, 18, you have a wonderful future ahead of you. There is hope for you yet. And I want you to hold on to that. There is hope for you yet. It's that word, hope, hope, hope. Billy Graham said, what oxygen is to the lungs, hope is to our survival in this world. And the Bible is filled with hope. So I want us for a few minutes to talk about overcoming fear biblically. biblically. What I've done is I don't do this often, but I'm going to give you an acronym of the word fear, F-E-A-R. If you can remember those four letters, I think you can get pretty close to having a, a biblical approach to overcoming fear in your life. First, first, face, face the fear. Face the fear. There was a, a reality show a few years ago called Fear Factor. That was the dumbest program on the planet. I'm afraid of scorpions. Okay, let's get in a box filled with scorpions. Like, what? I'm not, ta- I'm not talking about that nonsense. That's not what I'm talking about. I- I'm talking about facing your fear. In other words, call it out. When we're talking about the worries of life, the pressures that hit us, we need to call it out for what it is. And I think a great example of that is, is David. There's no indication when David faced Goliath that he was at all fearful. So don't misunderstand this. There's no indication in any of the stories of David moving into that battle line that he was fearful. But get this. He certainly didn't have a whole lot of optimism around him. His brothers didn't think he could do anything. What are you going to do? What about those, little, those few sheep you left behind? What have I done? He says, I'm just got, what, what's going on? Then he goes to Saul. I'll fight him. And Saul says, are you kidding me? You're going to go up against this guy. This guy's been trained from the time he's been a boy to be a warrior. You don't have a chance. But here's my armor and, you know, good luck. It's kind of what it was. David said, I can't fight. I can't do this. 
took off the armor. He went out and he faced this guy somewhere between six foot nine and nine feet. We don't know exactly what it was based upon the, the cubit that was used for measurement. That point is immaterial. I want to just say this. Goliath was a big dude. He was a big dude. His spear was 120, he had 125 pounds of coat of armor. His spearhead was 15 pounds. This was a man who knew how to fight. And I want you to know something. David walked out and he confronted him with these words. David said to the Philistine, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands and I will strike you down and cut off your head. This very day I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into our hands. Understand something. Some of you are facing fears right now that are as big as Goliath, and the way that you face that fear is to say in the name of the Lord God of the armies of Israel, I defy you because you have defied my belief, my faith, my strength in God, and I will not allow the fear to overwhelm me. You will come down in the name of Jesus. That's how you face your fear. You face your fear according to the word of God. There's no indication that David was afraid, but I want you to know something. In the natural realm, we'll stand against things that look overwhelming to us, and it is that moment you simply say, I don't come against you with sword and spear and javelin. I come against you in the name of the Lord God Almighty. And that's what you need to do when you call out your fear. I come against the fear of my future in the name of the Lord God Almighty. And believe that God will deliver you as he delivered David and the entire nation of Israel. Second is we need to expect resistance. We face our fears, but we expect resistance. How many of you would be willing to admit that you've prayed the same prayer more than one time for the same thing? Okay, there's seven of us in the room. I think there's more than that, honestly. I think we all have. In fact, we probably prayed certain things Hundreds of times, over and over again, because it just seems as if we can't. There's just this pushback. You ever sense that pushback? We're, we, we, we fight against certain things or we struggle with certain things and it just keeps coming back and again and again and again. Why? Because the enemy of your soul does not want you to live the full and abundant life that God has made possible through Christ. And if fear is the way that he will get a hold of you, he will use it. I'll tell you this. He knows where your scabs are, and he is going to pick at them. He's going to push at them, and he's never going to stop. He's been doing this for millennia. He knows how to get under your skin. He knows the fears that will cause you the greatest amount of anxiety and worry, and that's what he's going to focus on. So we need to face that fear, come against him in the name of the Lord, and we need to, as Scripture says in James, to humble yourselves before the Lord, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Understand, that is not a one-and-done prayer. You say, boy, that's no faith. No, that that is absolute truth and honesty. The enemy doesn't give up. It doesn't mean that we don't have... We don't have the overcoming power and victory, but it is something we need to expect resistance when he comes back the same way, because he will. And you've all experienced it. We've all experienced it. 
please understand, if I have to pray this a thousand times, I'm going to pray it a thousand times. Because the abundant life and the full life that Jesus has for me is absolutely worth my time to pray and to expect and to believe. And I'm going to expect resistance. Listen to what Peter said. Because Jesus, I love this, because Jesus was raised from the dead, we've been given a brand new life and have everything to live for, including a future in heaven and what? And the future starts now. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. That's what God has for us. So we overcome our fear. We face our fear. We expect resistance. And three, as we apply God's word, applying God's word is so incredibly important. A few minutes ago, I gave you that Billy Graham quote where he talked about there's hope in the word of God. It's filled with, with hope. Romans chapter 15, really one of those verses that just resonates with me so well. Such things were written in the scriptures long ago to teach us. And the scriptures, listen, and the scriptures give us, what's the word? Hope and encouragement as we patiently wait for God's promises to be fulfilled. The scriptures give us the hope that we need, but we need to apply it. I want to give you one example of how to apply God's word into the areas where there's maybe fear of, of some sort. Philippians chapter 4, this may be a familiar passage to you, but it's important to look at how we can apply it. Rejoice in the Lord always, and I'll say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Don't be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your heart and minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, Look at this. Whatever is true, noble, right, pure, lovely, admirable. If anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Now, what, how do you apply that? First, rejoice. Rejoice. It doesn't mean that I rejoice because I have fear. No, I rejoice because Christ lives within my life. And regardless of what happens around me, I can still rejoice. So I rejoice in the Lord, and I'm going to do it again. I'm going to rejoice. Then Paul says, be gentle. Why, why should we not show our gentleness to everyone? That is, a, that is a characteristic of the Spirit of God within our life. Apply it. Let gentleness be that which drives you. Then he says, live in anticipation of the Lord's return. The Lord's near. I need to get happy about the fact that that is the hope of the church. It is our hope. And then he says, don't be anxious. And he adds this qualifier. Don't be anxious about anything. Remember, that is a cousin. That's a cousin to fear. Don't be anxious about anything. But then he goes on, but pray with gratitude. Pray about everything, but do so with thanksgiving. So we pray over the fear in our life, but we say, Lord, I give you the thanks and the praise, and I confront this thing in the name of Jesus. Wow, what a difference. And then he says to receive the peace of God. And I would just say it this way. Don't just, don't just read it, but accept it. Receive it. Say, Jesus, I'm, I'm standing upon the promises of your word, and in your name I receive the peace of God that you have for me. Receive it. And then finally, adjust your thinking. Turn your mind away from the junk that will so easily take you down the pathway back to worry and anxiety, but begin to think about the things that are praiseworthy and admirable and lovely and good and let God transform your 
thinking, and hear this carefully, applying God's word, applying God's word means knowing God's word. I say this, I know, over and over and over again. You probably know, if you've been here any length of time, you know where I'm going. We must be people of the word of God. And we have no excuse. You have a, if you have a smartphone, you've got the Bible with you. Spend moments with him in his word. Know God's word. You can't apply it unless you know it. And then finally, recognize God's for you. You need to recognize God is for you. When I was a kid, my dad and I, we, <laughs> I'm not sure that I'm proud of this, my dad and I would watch wrestling, pro wrestling on Saturday nights. Now, I'm telling you something. I don't know why he watched wrestling. He, he never did anything on Saturdays except prepare to preach on Sundays. But every Saturday night after dinner, we watched professional wrestling. Now, as a kid, I didn't, I didn't really know it was fake until I got about another 10 minutes into it. Then I figured it out it was fake. But one of the things that I, I remember about wrestling or that kind of, I don't know if to really call it wrestling, whatever they were doing in the ring, the tag team thing, right? So there was two guys on each side and the guy looked like he was half dead and somehow he'd get over to his partner and he'd slap the hand and he'd jump over the thing and they'd start doing whatever they do and then, you know, it was all done. And here's the thing that I want you to keep. There's something really special about having someone in your corner. You know, when you know that you have an advocate, when you know that you have someone that's on your side, I want to tell you something. There is a strength connected to that that is, un, is unmatched. I want you to know something this morning. God is for you. I'm going to say it again. God is for you. Make no mistake. And, and I want you to hear, I want you to hear this verse. Isaiah 41:13. For I hold you by your right hand. I, the Lord, your God, and I say to you, don't be afraid and don't give up. I need to stop. I don't ask you to, I don't know that I've asked you to do this before. I'm going to ask you to do this. I want everybody to look at me. This isn't about me. This is for you. I want you to hear, I don't know what you're walking through this morning. I don't know what fears have gripped your heart. I don't know how you're feeling. I don't know if you're in that dark night of the soul. I don't know if there's a crisis. I don't know if there's abandonment issues. I don't know what's going on, but I want you to know this. Don't be afraid. And don't give up. Why? Because God is for you. He is for you. And I read a scripture this week that, I've read it before, but it just so grabbed me. And it's Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 16 and 17. And the Lord says to this prophet, he says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid and don't give up. The Lord your God is with you. Hear that. The Lord your God is with you. The mighty one will save you. He will rejoice over you. And you will rest in his love, and he will sing and be joyful about you. I want you to know that God 
is for you. And make no mistake, the Apostle Paul said to the Romans in 831, if God is for us, who can be against us? I want you to know that fear has no power over our lives whatsoever. And as we overcome fear biblically, there will be the peace of God, the purpose of God, and the presence of God in our lives unmatched. And I believe that God desires for your life and for mine that we would live a life of abundance and fullness because that's what he has promised to us. Overcome fear biblically. And this last thought this morning, the aftermath of the resurrection, it calms our fears and results in joy, peace, and purpose in the Holy Spirit.